The question came after another Maasai tribesman had said, which is, you know, God bless you, pastor. So his colleague, his fellow tribesman, heard that and asked me, who is God? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So, hearing that in Luke's ninth chapter, we are aware that the next ten chapters in the Gospel of Luke, from now until the end of October for us as we follow the lectionary, uh, that one sentence provides the underlying context of everything that we read in the Gospel to follow. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. It's within this journey or what is sometimes referred to as the travel narrative that we hear some of the most familiar and well-loved uh, stories of Jesus, like the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, which will have an even more poignant impact after hearing this morning's reading where James and John are asking Jesus if maybe they should rain down fire to consume these unwelcoming Samaritans, huh? Or the story of the prodigal son. All of these beloved stories of Jesus happen in the context of Jesus having set his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a prominent place in Luke's gospel and in the kind of second book from this same author, the book of Acts. Uh, Luke begins in the temple in Jerusalem. It's the location of the death of Jesus, but also his resurrection and his ascension, which is what uh, the, the book of Acts begins with there in Jerusalem, followed by the, the story of Pentecost, uh, the birth of the church. And on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus and his followers experience a lot of rejection, a lot of opposition, especially from uh, those in authority, religious and political. And uh, right from the beginning, from his temptation out in the wilderness after his baptism, from his first sermon in Nazareth where they, they drive him out of town, Jesus is opposed. It, it, it sometimes feels like he, he, he drove away as many people as he attracted along the way. So, so when these Samaritans oppose him in the ninth chapter, we're not shocked by it. Maybe it's not really even all that surprising that some of the disciples step up and ask Jesus to bring down fire and consume these unwelcoming foreigners that were known to be antagonists with the people of Israel. By this ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, the followers of Jesus have a pretty good idea that he has supernatural powers that often inspire awe and even great fear. When uh, last week we saw the demon-possessed man set free by Jesus in the eighth chapter as the, the demons were, were in this kind of oh, dramatic, incredible story, sent into a herd of swine that hurled themselves off 
a cliff, you know, people were freaked out by this supernatural power of Jesus. And that was using his power to help somebody. Imagine what Jesus could do to the opposition. Hmm? So it appears that the disciples have kind of had it with all of the rejection and opposition. They feel like, you know, we've left everything. We left our families, our vocations behind. We left our home villages behind to follow Jesus. And everywhere we go, we get this opposition or rejection from the very people that Jesus is coming to teach and serve and save. Jesus, how about we give them back a little of their own medicine? What Jesus does instead is he turns the tables on his own closest followers. A man says, I'll follow you, only let me give my father a proper burial. And Jesus responds in effect, you know, condolences on the loss of your father, but you're not quite ready to follow if you're going to stay behind. Let the dead bury the dead. Those Funeral liturgies could go on for, for days. Jesus is always on the move, going forward, moving forward. Hmm? Next village and the next. There's a sense of urgency now that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. You might think that given all of this opposition, that Jesus might just lower the bar a bit, right? You know, Start telling people how great their lives could be, what they stand to gain, how God wants to bless them with flocks and, and land and, you know, the, the top-of-the-line sandals, whatever it is that they, they were really hoping for in their lives. But no, Jesus does not lower the bar. He appears to raise the bar, calling on would-be followers to reject their loyalties to their home place and their possessions, and to follow him. And there, there is no doubt that that early church struggled with this, as does the church in our day, this kind of lowering the bar thinking, to focus so much on the benefits and the, the blessings of, of following Christ that we dismiss what is difficult and inconvenient and you know, annoying, if not in some cases, outright dangerous following Jesus. If you were here a few weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, you might recall Pastor Edith's own personal story of what she risked in order to turn away from her old life toward a life of following Jesus. Just powerful. So on the healthy side of this, focus on the positive aspects of, of being a part of the Christian community, a disciple of Jesus. We might talk about the ways our Christian faith brings hope and meaning and, and even adventure and, and purpose to our lives. It's all so important and it's all so very true. Maybe on the less healthy side of this, focus on the positive aspects is, is a kind of focus on self-promotion or multiplication, material wealth and the anticipated demise of our enemies, that, that sort of thing. To focus more on what God can do for me rather than on the life of generosity and, and outreach that God is calling me at all times to live into. 
So I hear a lot of sermons, mostly on TV, about all the stuff that God wants to do for me because my life is, you know, such a struggle. It's all about me all the time. And no wonder they get such huge crowds. But do we really find time to reflect on the challenges of following Christ? And what are those challenges? Is it living up to some holiness, religious code that we're after? And while we're at it, making sure that we apply our standard as such to other people as well to determine who's in and who's not. You know, it seems like Jesus was always getting into trouble for falling short of this kind of standard. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. That's what they were yelling. Think about it. I shared during our Wednesday service this week that I was talking with a few Maasai tribesmen uh, last week while we were in Tanzania, and one of them asked me this question, who is God? <laughs> not, they're not, the Maasai are not real big on small talk. You know. <laughs> who, who is God was his question. Uh, the question came after another Maasai tribesman had said, which is, you know, God bless you, pastor. So his colleague, his fellow tribesman, heard that and asked me, who is God? If you don't know, the Maasai are a striking nomadic tribe. There are 120 different distinct tribes in Tanzania. They all have their own particular distinct language and cannot communicate with people from another tribe unless they have learned uh, Swahili, a kind of overarching national language. So the Maasai uh, live out uh, following the rains, caring for their flocks. They move with the rains. They're a kind of nomadic tribe. These days, you can find many Maasai who are, uh, in fact, uh, Christians. And because of the strong and growing presence of the Lutheran church in Tanzania, uh, that means there are a good number of Lutheran Maasai, which is a super cool thing to be, I think. Uh, but there are also many who follow the traditional religion of their, of their ancestors. Uh, so back to the tribesmen who asked me who God was. He told me, he said, my God is the fig tree, which I found fascinating. And and uh, I had some questions right away that popped into my mind. And he, he said his grandfather before him uh, looked at the baobab tree. This is the kind of iconic uh, tree that grows in, only in certain places at certain elevations in, in Africa. And just I told him I would have gone with the baobab, but fig tree's cool too. So what do you call God? He continued his question. And I said... Well, Christians believe that this question you ask is really right at the center of our faith. We believe that to answer this question, that God decided to come among us as a person said to be of the tribe of Judah. You're of the tribe of the Messiah. He was said to be of the tribe of Judah. His name is Jesus, and he lived 
among us uh, as, a, as a servant, as one who was serving, caring for people who were often thought to be cursed, like maybe the albinos are often considered here in Tanzania, or impure somehow, or lost. This conversation came last week near the very end of our trip to Tanzania, traveling around the Kilimanjaro area, visiting orphanages and, and schools in poor villages, uh, an incredible outreach to st street children called Amani Home for st street children that we partner with, hospitals, churches, and, and people living in simple homes uh, made of scrap wood and, and banana leaves like this brave woman here and her family. If you can see that this woman is uh, afflicted with HIV, she's being cared for in our rural Machame Lutheran Hospital. And this kind of mud floor, cold, damp home made of sticks and mud and dried banana leaves is not conducive to her regaining her health. Here's the whole group of us with her. So while we were there, our group decided to tell her we would like to raise funds to build you a safe, dry home with a concrete floor and a metal roof. Uh, and she was deeply moved uh, by this gesture. And so uh, we, are, uh, we are endeavoring to do that. It's about $3,500 to build a home for such a person up there on the lower slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, there, this will be the 15th such home that has been constructed for poor families uh, as a result of our Prince of Peace vision trips to Tanzania. What always strikes me about our Lutheran brothers and sisters in Tanzania is their commitment and their passion for reaching out to people in need, <laughs> even though we would see all of them uh, as falling in that category. On our first day uh, in Moshi Town, we met a woman named Faustina. I think we have a picture there. She's in the wheelchair. She suffered a spinal cord injury as a girl uh, in an accident <clears throat> and was uh, paralyzed. And as she shared with us out in her little office there. At first, she thought that her life was, was over. I mean, it's hard enough to deal with that no matter where you live in the world, but in a place such as Tanzania where there are cultural reasons for people to think uh, that you've been cursed somehow and there's shame brought to you and your family to the just logistics of getting around a country that is anything but accessible, uh, she thought her life was over, but through support from the faith community, from the church, she hope returned for her and a joy for living, and she has now decided she's founded this little organization called Sangam Bailey, which means uh, keep moving forward, moving forward. Uh, so uh, we were able to visit her and, and tell her, boy, we'd really like to partner with you in the work that you're doing. She visits people in the hospital right after they've had a spinal cord injury, particularly women. She reaches out particularly to, to women because they, they share a certain uh, a set of uh, particular challenges. And sometimes she says, I just wheel into their room 
so that they can see me. They're not ready to, to see their own families, yet they feel their life has come to an end. Uh, so I just let them see me the first time. But then she goes back, and she goes back, and she goes back until she can create relationship and help them see that there can, in fact, be hope for a good life. She gets to the schools and helps the teachers learn and grow in their ability to help disabled children. What Faustina does for poor and devastated women of spinal cord injury, she does in response to her faith in Christ. What she does is difficult, almost impossible in many cases, but she does it with a heart full of joy and gratitude. To be in her presence is to be swept up in her enthusiasm. They're able to negotiate the doorways to their particular homes and to begin a, a, a life of of meaning and purpose. It's just an incredible ministry, and she's partners with us now. And I think, you know, on Pentecost Sunday, the day we left for this trip, and we had this rich and meaningful multi-ethnic worship experience here in our own sanctuary with Hope Liberian Ministries and Faithful Friends of Jesus, a Spanish-speaking church, and then a group of us went and off we were to uh, Tanzania where we were warmly embraced and welcomed. And, and I just think of the church, you know, who is your God that, that Maasai uh, tribesmen asked me? Who is your God? And when I think about God's church in the world and uh, how difficult it sometimes is, in fact, it often is, uh, and yet how vitally important it is to the world. It's so moving to be a part of it. On Thursday, we gathered here uh, for the funeral services for Frank Clinton's sister, Anna, a big Liberian community gathered here at Prince of Peace to recall the promises of God uh, made to her. And it was a moving service. We'll gather again tomorrow for another funeral service. I just think of the sweep of the last three weeks just in our own congregation, and I think of my answer to that question, who is God to you? I see God in the work of God's church and God's people uh, here, uh, which extends uh, all across the world. That uh, program, Building uh, Homes for uh, Village People, started um, quite a number of years ago when a friend of mine was along for one of these trips and we visited a family such as the one we saw there who was struggling with a very poorly constructed mud house and that was not conducive to the caregivers to recovering from their illness. And so my friend asked uh, another colleague and friend uh, who lives there and works in Tanzania as a healthcare provider at the local hospital, what could we do for this family? To which Bob, my friend who lives there said, I don't really know. I mean, that's not, I, I don't know. What could we provide them a, a better place to live? And so Bob did some research, figured out how to get a very small, simple uh, home built, two room home with a metal roof and a concrete floor uh, built for them. That, and that was the first home uh, that was built in this program called Houses for Health. Today, I think they're closing in on home number 170 
So imagine uh, what God can do uh, when we reach out to those in need, when we ask the question, Lord, what would you have us to do? How might you have us respond? Is there something we could do? And to think that 15 of those homes now are just a direct result of our own people coming and going from Tanzania. What a blessing it is to be a part of that work. None of it easy, uh, much of it difficult. Uh, so when I am asked, who is God to you? Uh, or I might reframe the question as to how do I experience God? Where do I see God? I see God in all the ways that the people of this community of faith reach out to those in need and give of ourselves. And that means strengthening the community that we share here so that we might have a greater impact out in the world. That's who I, uh, how I experience God in this world. And it is a blessing. There, there, there's a lot of talk and a lot of truth in the fact that, the, that the, the mainline church is struggling in this new culture, in this new age. But uh, there is no denying the fact that the church community, the community of faith in Christ, those of us who are following Jesus, uh, have an important, exciting role to play in uh, God's good creation. So we go now in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.